This week on A Lively Experiment, the latest financial reports on the candidates for governor, with a little more than a month to primary day. And does the U.S. Supreme Court have a credibility problem? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, attorney and legal analyst Lou Polner, Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, and former Providence mayor Angel Tavares. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. It is great to have you with us. Expect a barrage of commercials over the next five weeks as the candidates for governor on the Democratic side start spending in earnest the money they've been raising over the past six months. And this week, a mounting number of endorsements as the three top candidates, Governor McKee, Nellie Gorbea, and Helena Folks, jockey for position, getting ready for the home stretch to the primary. Bill, we were talking right before the uh, before we started. This has been a relatively quiet season so far, given that the primary is right on the horizon. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised, actually. Uh, a lot of people are surprised that um, Helena Folks um, kind of waited longer than a lot of people thought, being a newcomer to get up on the air and, and get going full speed. Um, you know, it's been a, it's been a lot of door-to-door um, -door kind of grassroots campaigning um, for Nellie, uh, which is typical for her. And of course, you know, Governor McKee has had the benefit of being in office and getting some of that uh, non-paid, I guess, PR you could call it, and, and doing the business of being the governor. But I thought it would would have been a little more lively, uh, you know, at this point um, here being on the lively. I mean, we're only we were talking earlier. We're only about a little more than a month out from the primary, and in, as Angel, as you know, it's hard to get people to pay attention uh, in August. Um, you know, they're trying to squeeze in their last vacations. Their kids are getting ready eventually to go back to school, and all of a sudden the primary's on top of you. Um, so I think you're right. I think it'll be interesting to see. If people really start to ramp up, then how effective that'll be. And early voting begins August 24th, yeah. so some of it's baked in. When you did run, Angel, you had a, you had a primary back in 2014. <clears throat> what was the strategy for August? It's very hard to get people engaged. Well, you want to engage as many as you can and uh, touch as many voters as you can, and I think that that's what the campaigns are doing in their own way. Uh, some on, on TV, door-to-door. Uh, -door. Uh, I think it's going to be a close race, and I think everything that we see in terms of the polling uh, indicates that. Um, I think Nellie Gorbea, who I support, is in a really good position. The polling's been strong recently for it, her. Well, it, it's been strong, and even the, the Fleming poll, one of the interesting things about the Fleming poll, and this is on, their, on the website, is if you look at the crosstab and you look at the very likely voters, she has a one-point lead over McKee on the very likely. Overall, McKee was up by two, which is all within the margin of error, but one in four people and I think the chairman would say that one in four, maybe, if one in four people show out to vote, right, um, that's going to be a high turnout. So um, you've got to focus on those very likely voters, make sure to get them out to the polls, and I think that Secretary Gorbea is in a good position with that. Um, Governor McKee uh, it will be right there as well. I know he has a great uh, get-out-the-vote effort as well. So um, I think it's going to come down to both of them. Um, Lou, you got two guys on either side of you who love cross-tabs. <laughs> they like to dive right into the... Uh... What are your thoughts? What we'll find out now is how, you know, he's aligned himself, even though they're not on the same ticket, but Sabina Maddow. So we're going to see whether or not she's going to be able to help his cause. And clearly that's why he appointed her in the first instance. 
Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, that $3,000 for everybody, doesn't that 15 second $1,500 payment so come very soon? It just either did or is about to hit the bank account now. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's the power of incumbency. I think, I think the governor had a big week uh, a week or so ago when he picked up a couple of big endorsements. Yeah, he um, got the NEA, from, didn't he? From labor and education. And, you know, uh, Nellie's always had a, a pretty good campaign team in terms of a get-out-the-vote effort because I personally think that that's what's going to make the decision. You know, when you've got... I'm a little surprised at the number of undecided, if the polls are accurate. 22%. And there's some question about that, you know, the last few years, how accurate they are. But if they're accurate, that's a high number to, to be 30 days out. So to me, it's important that your team can identify your likely supporters and make sure they vote. And the governor, I think, had a good week because, you know, the, those endorsements, you know, they may not bring a ton of money with them, but what they bring are bodies. And that's going to be what this is all about, I think. And, and uh, Helena Folks, I don't think you can count out, certainly, but she's new to the game, so to speak. But you can buy a get-out, Angel, as you know. If you've got the finances, you can buy a, a pretty significant get-out-the-vote she, effort. She's got so. a very effective ad campaign, I think. Uh, yeah. She comes across very intelligent, very caring. I'm not sure ads make the difference that they once did when everybody was, you know, watching 6, 10, or 12. There's such an influence now of social media. Well, a lot of them and are I know the campaigns now, pay attention, and they spend money on social media as they should. But Nellie Gorbea picked up also <coughs> uh, the, the other teachers' union, right? That's, that's exactly right. American Federation of that's Teachers. That's exactly right. And that's a big, that's a big the deal. The Rhode Island Federation of Teachers endorsed uh, Nellie Gorbea, Secretary Gorbea, and that was a big coup, I think, in that sense for her um, because you have an incumbent governor. And I'll say one thing about... The, uh, the undecided. When you are an incumbent governor and you've been in office almost two years, I think it's about a year and a half, um, and there are that many undecideds, that also says something I think it reflects on, on uh, the governor as well. Um, so I expect that. And certainly with respect to uh, uh, Mrs. Folks, I never count out anyone who can write a, a seven-figure check. Um, and uh, she certainly has uh, put everything into this. But I think that, um, that Nellie Gorbea has a base. I think that uh, Governor McKee has a base. I think that the electorate, the Democratic electorate, the primary electorate, has moved to the left. And I've said this, I think, on this show before, that um, you know, I, I look at the mold of Michael Bloomberg, who I happen to like, but I'm not certain that there's that space beyond where she is now. But I've been proven wrong before and might be proven wrong now. You look at the money. The, the governor has the latest financial quarter, $1.2 million. Uh, Secretary Gorbea, 786000 and Helena Folk, 692 Now, she can pump in as much as she wants. But what about the money at this point? The governor has, has pretty good cash on hand at this point. He certainly does. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think that the uh, – I'm going to disagree with Bill. I think that the undecided – <laughs> Shock. No, just on a small, small matter. That the uh, undecided could be as high as the 20s. And, and, and the reason is because we had so many quality candidates. Mm. It's not like we have Chris Young, may you rest in peace, you know, throwing his hat in the ring in China. And throwing a table. Exactly. So uh, there are good candidates, and it's really difficult to say something negative about any one of them. What, I mean, it may be that this is election is another indicator that there's going to be more discussions going forward about ranked voting. Um, yeah. majorities in order to win. Um, I don't think that discussion is over with. And if we see a race here where you, where, and I think it's, it's very possible that, that between Helena and, 
Nelly and Governor McKee, they, that they could be close and it could split and somebody can win with, you know, in the 30s. And that, again, uh, but, we, but we've seen that here often. Right, uh, but, it, but it, I, think it, I think it adds to that discussion. Except for uh, Governor Raimondo <clears throat> in her second election, she got just over 50%. That yeah. was a big deal for her. Yeah. Every other governor's race over the last 10 years was won with fewer. And Bob Healy was in, was a uh, thing in the and back in 2010, you know, you had Ken Block was running, so he split a little bit of the vote. And so all of that. I don't know. What about what about rank choice? We've got a long way to go to get from here to there, don't you think? We do. I mean, I think New York City did it in the mayor's race. That's and, right. And it uh, it took him like two weeks to figure while. it out. I, right? I actually was relieved in one way, and that is that Eric Adams had won uh, at least the initial round, and um, I was very happy that he he won the rank choice voting because I think people would have felt like um, it was not proper if he had, if, if somehow um, Mrs. Garcia had overcome him in the ranked choice voting. So I think there's a lot of that we have to do to educate people about it, um, to make sure that they understand it. Um, and certainly it's something I think that um, the chairman's right. It probably is a discussion that uh, is going to continue into the future. In the CD2 race, I think, it, I know, I know there have been some spirited candidates kind of nipping at Seth Magaziner's heels. It looks like he's the front runner right now in all the polling. It sets up interestingly against Alan Fung, given what's going on nationally. Oh, absolutely. That's why, I mean, again, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to defer to the former chair to the former mayor. I've got my own thoughts on that, but I think he's, uh, he's very viable. And matter of fact, I was just watching something yesterday on cable news uh, oh, it was the uh, McCarthy uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the House. He said that he's coming to Rhode Island. He thinks that they're going to take Rhode Island. How much national money is going <laughs> to come into this? Let race? me tell you something. If I was Alan Fong, I'd be on the phone. I'm not sure I want Kevin McCarthy coming to Rhode Island. Uh, speaker, you can go somewhere else <laughs> if you like. like Joe Biden. We, he, unless he's trying to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I don't know if yeah, that's a good Yeah, he's not the guy. Idea. He's, yeah, Look, he's a little crippled. I think we talked about it before we went on the air. That, that this, I live in CD1. There's a dramatic difference in the voters in CD1 and CD2, at least in my opinion. And CD2, um, you know, with Cranston, Warwick, Weston Cranston, um, if you look at the numbers even in the last presidential election, uh, uh, former President Trump did well in CD2, you know, here in Rhode Island. So I think it sets up for a titanic fight between um, Seth and Allen. I think it will be close. Um, I think that's an undecided race right now. I think it's going to depend a lot on how Allen treats the issue of Donald Trump. And I think he's been kind of cagey. He's been dodging. He's saying we need new blood. We need, but he hasn't. He hasn't. One of, Trump. I think one of, and one of the issues that you know, it happens. It's it's happened with Angel. You know, you're you're affiliated with the party, and certain things happen that you have nothing to do with. So between Roe v. Wade, the the the, the discussions now about the Supreme Court sort of these residual issues may have an effect on that race because people are more energized, um, at least on the Democratic side, I think right now. And I don't think that those national discussions, I think they help Seth, um, and I think it will also drive voter turnout um, in the areas that he needs. When it. you look at the numbers, though, and you see like 68, 70 percent just don't want any part of Biden, and you got to worry about whether that runs down the ticket because everyone's blaming the Democratic Party right now for the inflation. Although there's been a little bit of a shift in the last couple of weeks. I think the, I, I, whether it's enough to overcome for the midterms, he's picked up a couple of wins. Gas prices are coming down a little bit. There are, I mean, Kansas was a resounding, you know, message from the electorate on abortion rights. Yeah, no, listen, in terms of this particular race, though, it sets up very nicely for Allen, and this is why. First of all, he was able to avoid a primary, mm -hmm. which would have definitely driven him to the right. 
<coughs> uh, to make sure to get out of the primary. So he's able to do that. He's got a contested Democratic uh, primary. And I agree that Seth Magaziner is the front runner, but I also want to point out there's Joy Fox, there's Sarah Morgenthau, Omar, Omar Ba. ba. Yep. I only say that because I've been an underdog, a uh, big underdog uh, in the past, and I know that people sometimes look uh, look past that. But certainly I think that anyone looking at it would say he is, uh, Seth Magaziner is the front runner. Have um, we seen a for sale sign yet in that CD1 house well, that he lives I, in? I, or not? I don't know whether we have or haven't, but the thing about it is, look, it, it's it's Rhode Island and it's very small. Um, so, you know, he, he, I think he said he lives within like a mile of CD, uh, of CD1. But I think it's going to come down to, for Allen, um, how he does in Cranston and Warwick. Um, I think he's going to win Cranston, and how he does in Warwick is going to be very key because that's where most of the votes are in that uh, CD2. Um, and so we'll see what happens there. Um, they are trying to nationalize the race. I totally agree with the chairman. I would say, um, Leader McCarthy, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> um, the best thing you can do is probably um, stay out of Rhode Island and maybe help me raise money quietly. Um, I expect that we will see a lot of national money um, poured in here because uh, the, the shift has been, Monmouth had a poll where the, it's a generic preference, but what we've seen is like 50 to 43 right now for Democrats. The switch has been, you know, um, like 10 or 11 points over the last month or two. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the overturning of Roe v. Roe v. Wade. So uh, it's going to be an interesting race, but it's, um, I expect it will be close. Just by coincidence, we have three lawyers. We have a powerhouse a law firm now of Lynch, Polner, and Tavares. Maybe you guys could uh, band together on some issues. Um, you had alluded to the Supreme Court. I'm interested what you think. Senator Whitehouse has talked about term limits. Some people have talked about so-called packing the court. I wonder now whether you think the Supreme Court does. They've talked about a credibility issue and whether there's a big disconnect between what some of the rulings the court and what the populace feels. And look, we're in a bubble now of 2022. I'm sure this has happened in previous courts. But at this snapshot in time, what do you think about that? I think for the first time in my adult life, the Supreme Court is probably uh, people have the lowest opinion that they've ever had that I can remember of the Supreme Court and that they now see the court as being just a political arm, um, and I think that, that that's going to have, I know we're lawyers, so you look at it differently. I don't think the average person necessarily gets up every day and says, I wonder what the Supreme Court's doing today. But I think the Roe v. Wade was a huge wake-up call for people who may not ordinarily pay attention to the Supreme Court to say, wait a minute, I didn't realize that this kind of thing would really happen in, in this day and age. So I think people see the court as, as very, very political, uh, unlike, and I'm sure there was politics previously in, in some of the, obviously we saw with Clarence Thomas's hearings, but never, I don't think, have we seen anything, at least in my uh, recollection, um, what like we've seen recently, and I think that people have a completely different opinion and a very negative one about the Supreme Court. Sheldon Whitehouse, I think, deserves some credit because Sheldon's been kind of banging the drum for a while about the Supreme Court. This yeah, is not a new what? thing. If you're going to have term limits on the Supreme Court, then there ought to be term limits on Sheldon Whitehouse too. You know, so I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the hypocrisy is there. Let me preface what I'm about to say. Except that if, if you're Sheldon, you got to get reelected, right? If you're a Supreme Court judge and you can get put on, you're there for life. And, and yeah, but you and, a I, big you and I both you know, know the that. The Supreme Court doesn't have to face voters every six years. When was the last time we changed Congress in Rhode Island? No. Once you get into Congress, you're there for life. It's like a life tenure, just like on the Supreme well, Court. Well, but like, you've got to get elected. Like That's true. <laughs> you got to get elected. But go ahead. I agree. Uh, let me preface this. I'm very pro-choice. Uh, absolutely. And everyone is now saying, you know, this was a political decision because the court was stacked with conservatives. 
I, as a lawyer, and not a constitutional scholar, but somebody who cares about the Constitution, it was a very liberal court back in 72 when Roe versus Wade was decided. I think that that court bastardized the Constitution in order to be able to give you a constitutional right of abortion. Fifty years ago. Yes. Yeah. And I think that what this was is a constitutional correction. Nowhere in any legal scholar's mind can you bastardize the Constitution to say it's all right to kill a fetus. So my point is, having again prefaced I'm extremely pro-choice, I think the right decision is to send it back to the states, which the Supreme Court did, and I have absolutely no problem. But I'm not the general populace who looks at this as a political uh, gerrymandering. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that uh, I think that the court is at its lowest level now, and I think that they brought it on themselves. Um, I just disagree with Mr. Poner because I think you have people on the court right now who claim to be originalists and look at language, but they ignore the preamble, they ignore the Ninth Amendment, which reserves the right to the people that are not enumerated, the Tenth Amendment that reserves rights to the states. Um, they say they believe in precedent and that it's settled law until it isn't. Um, they believe in the right to bear arms, but they forget the, the Constitution says a well-regulated militia is that's, that's where the Second Amendment begins, right? They're talking about well-regulated militia. They believe corporations are people and should spend um, unlimited amount. I mean, I'd like to know uh, if the founders actually believe that. I doubt it. Um, so I think that what we have is a, um, is a court majority right now that doesn't reflect the country, um, but is really imposing their uh, political beliefs um, on the rest of us. And I do think that one of the issues is that the Supreme Court is insulated. There's really, um, there's really, it's just, it, they're insulated. I don't think that Sheldon Whitehouse's proposal uh, would be found to be constitutional by the Supreme Court because it says they, they hold office That's while right. in good behavior. That's right, it's got to go to the Supreme Court, right? Um, but I would love to see the U.S. Senate and the Congress look at something that the Constitution says, and that is they have the ability to make exceptions to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. That's in the Constitution. Um, so that they could actually limit, I think, the, some of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Well, it was a perfect storm of politics about how we got here. Merrick Garland, who probably should have been on the Supreme Court, Mitch McConnell upholds that, and then they ram through Amy Coney Barrett, which they really, you know, that was near the election. So While the, voting was going on. While, vo while voting was going on. So, I mean, that and Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, Neil Gorsuch was kind of the trade-off, but both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said that Roe was settled law. So, I mean, it really was, it wasn't one thing. It was like a, a, a combination of things over the last five years, and I think that's why people think that politics entered the process. Don't you oh, think, Absolutely, Bill? absolutely. And I think people... I think people have watched more closely than they probably have previously, and I think that, that people feel now sort of put off that this is, the confidence level is gone, I, th I think, among people, generally speaking, with respect to the Supreme Court. They always, for, to some degree, maybe even incorrectly, the Supreme Court, I think, was always seen differently than Congress or even the White House, you know, and they, they were separate and apart. And I think a lot of that now has been has been wasted. And I thought it was a disgraceful to watch uh, Alito give his, his little speech um, uh, recently. Why don't these guys where, just shut up? He, Why do he, they speak and he, publicly? And he's, he's like the, the smart little kid in the class that thinks he's smarter than everybody else. And, and for a Supreme Court justice to get up and basically embarrass the country and make these really inappropriate comments, almost rubbing everybody's nose in the fact that he's in a position to make this decision and, and too bad for everybody but else. But it makes you realize he's been playing the long game for a long time. Absolutely. He's, all of these people have been waiting 
they've thought this way for since they've been on the court and before, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, you know, to go from it's settled law or some, I think he said that years ago when he during his confirmation to it was egregiously wrong. Um, you know, it's uh, we would have liked to have known that both earlier. Can, but, but both can be true. It clearly was settled law. It's been 50 years. But Lou thinks it was egregiously wrong. I think it was egregiously what, wrong. What about um, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Well, I got to tell you, they, they screwed that up to a farthing well between the, uh, the president. And I mean, first of all, leaks like that should never happen. And from what we're hearing, it looks like it was Biden and his branch who said that, uh, that, that leaked that information. And once that happened, we would have looked like absolute cowards. I mean, he, first of all, after what happened in Afghanistan and that horrible withdrawal, he should have been supporting her trip to Taiwan. Open and shut case. But then he says our Pentagon doesn't think it's a good idea. She had to go. I'm glad she went. But she should have taken some Republicans with her, so it would have been a bipartisan showing. You would have never seen a Republican go with her, don't you think, in this day and age? I don't know. I think that would have been a good idea. I think you probably could have located somebody. But I, you know, I've been to Taiwan. Um, I went with, with uh, then-Congressman Kennedy um, years ago. And look, they're an incredibly proud people proud of their country, proud of the fact that they do not see themselves as part of this one China policy. Where that's going to end up, I think people even in Taiwan have grave concerns about where that is all going um, be, under China. But I think that, that the speaker did the right thing. And by the way, once the trip was planned, there's no way in, a, in the world you could ever say, well, I'm not going to go out. because China says I shouldn't go. And it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, poking him in the eye. What do you think, Andrew? No, I agree. I think she, I'm glad she went. And we don't bow to um, threats from other countries here in America. And we shouldn't. And I'm glad she did that. Um, and ultimately, um, the president uh, didn't, didn't reach out to her, which was very clear, um, because, you know, I think that the trip was the right thing to do. So uh, I'm glad but she did. having said that, her going is going to escalate the time frame with when China goes into Taiwan and takes it over. And I have every belief, based on the perception worldwide, that we have a weak foreign policy and a weak president, I think that they're going to go into Taiwan before his term is over. All right, you have it on tape here. Just quickly before we get to outrages, as the de facto mayor of Pawtucket, uh, what is your thought on Tidewater Landing? Look, I, I, as someone who lives in Pawtucket, I want to see it be a huge success. I think anytime you do that kind of public-private partnership deal of that size and scope, there are risks involved. But I think that the people who went through this process saw those risks and decided that the potential benefits outweighed those risks. It's not a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's the type of investment that could make a huge difference in not only in Pawtucket but in the Blackstone Valley. And if, and if that's successful, as we hope it will be, that will also have an effect, you know, in towards Providence and other areas of the state. But in so. just a year, it's gone from $83 million cost to $124 million cost. Uh, McKee owns this. And I have to tell you, it just doesn't feel good when you see that kind of cost overruns and we haven't even started yet. What would Governor Tavares have done on this? Oh, <laughs> he hasn't been. Uh, he, he hasn't heard that term that, for a long I haven't time. Heard that, nor will I hear that. No, listen. I think that this is a, a tough situation because Pawtucket, having lost uh, the Paw Sox, I think leaves it in a very difficult situation. But we shouldn't compound one mistake with another, and I think that's what we have to be careful. So you think about. the financing is problematic? I, I'm very worried about the financing. I just well, say that. That. But you know, one of the problems we have, and I don't know when we're going to get over it. The is hangover. Everything is Studio 38. Yeah. yeah. You know, and at some point we have to realize that yes, that was and we've talked about it here and beat it to death, a horrible decision should have never happened. 
but that doesn't mean that every project going forward. It makes you realize that the Pawsocks were short money compared to what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Have we paid off the bond bill? Are we done with the thirty-eight studios? No, isn't it? Wasn't it like nine or ten years? Yeah, Are we finally yeah. done with it? We're getting there. I mean, it was. Listen, no, no, I, I don't know of anyone that defends the Studio Thirty Eight situation, but to look at at the, every single project now in Rhode Island through that lens, any, through that lens, you just can't do it. At some point, you got to put it behind you. Yeah. All right. Let's do uh, outrageous and/or kudos, Mr. Poland. Let's begin with you this week. I've been a proud uh, page-turning subscriber to the Providence Journal for over 40 years. Uh, My outrage is is that it's gotten worse than it could have ever been. It's gotten worse than when uh, the late Buddy Cianci called it the the, the Providence pamphlet. And the reality is is that when you open up and you churn and the three or four, second to fifth page are all car ads, full ads, so that's my outrage. My kudo is that my best friend said to me, you're an idiot. He says, you know how much you're spending for that page turning? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, get the E-edition. The E-edition is $9.99 a month. And on top of that, you get the USA Today for free as a bonus. Well, I have to tell you, I'm not, I don't miss page turning anymore. I'm thrilled with what I have. Lewis, come into the 21st century. I have. Kicking and screaming. I have. Angel, what do you have? Well, I, I don't want to call it a kudos because I think it's um, maybe not the right term, but I just want to take a moment to recognize Mayor Dawley, mm. um, who passed away this week, 91 years old, and uh, was really a great leader. I think uh, p- maybe people don't even uh, appreciate just how great of a leader he was, but if you enjoy a game at the, what is now called the dunk for at least another year, I think, mm. you have Mayor Dawley to thank. Um, he was a steward of our fi- a good steward of our finances. He was very involved in the development of Providence, and uh, I'm glad that I had a chance to meet him um, and talk with him at City Hall um, to name our municipal building after him, and I hope people will remember him finally because he deserves it. He was, he was a savvy politician. I love reading the retrospectives now. You know, Dan McGowan went into the, the papers, and he also, Mark Patinkin had a great column on him, and he was a little bit, I mean, I've been around since dirt, and and he was before my time. So I, in all the years, this is the stunning thing. I've been working in this market 40 years. I never met Joe Dorley. I mean, it's like I hadn't gone to Twin Oaks until a couple of years ago, too. So apparently I'm missing out. Well, if out. you went down to Twin Willows, you would have seen him often. All right, the Willows, right? <laughs> Bill, what do you have? I think mine is an outrage at, at uh, the, the big oil companies. Um, I mean, there's plenty of outrages out there. But, I mean, to look at what people are suffering through, um, you know, every time they fill up their car or try to decide if they can take a vacation because of the cost of gas, and then they release a, a, a report within the last week or so that, you know, Chevron, Exxon, and these big oil companies. $17 billion and, in profits. And they're going to make another $60 billion in the next three months. And they've made a combined total of $273 billion over and above what they made same time period a year ago. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And people should be outraged. Yeah, but if and we were energy independent like we were before Biden took office, you wouldn't see these types of profits. In no. You, and you'd yeah, still you see gas at $2.5 a, a gallon. You're the, go back to reading the journal, the paper version. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous that they're, they're letting, they're letting the, these oil companies just rape and pillage all of us every time we fill our, our tank up. Is the thought, though, that they see the writing on the wall, especially moving away from fossil fuels, so make the profit while you can now? Do so you buy into steal that? steal as much as you can now so you have some I'm not saying it's over. right, but I'm saying what, <laughs> what do you think about that theory? Oh, I think there's absolutely some truth to it, no question about it. And I think that the oil companies... 
are, are aware of that, and I think that they to, to, to should be disgraced at the fact that they've used this, these developments in Ukraine and, and Europe even more than here to, to inflate the prices far beyond what they needed to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. All right, folks, that is uh, all the time we have. We appreciate you joining us, and especially the uh, law firm of Lynch and Polner and Tavares coming to a, uh, a courtroom near you soon. Angel uh, might want to make that Tavares, Polner, and Lynch. I'm you might want to change the name. Uh, you have to <laughs> do a little. Do, don't have Kevin McCarthy come for we, we our We were seated incorrectly for that, that firm. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was my bad. Uh, folks, thank you for joining us. If you can't see us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we're all over social media. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter and, of course, all of our shows are archived at ripbs.org slash lively. Come back next week. We'll have the very latest for you and all the analysis on the races going on. Come back as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by hi i'm john hazen white jr for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face rhode islanders i'm a proud supporter of this great program and rhode island pbs